don't want to just stay on the surface level in our walk with the Lord. Amen. We want to mature and grow and, and we want to allow God to have his way and we want to bring everyone along and, and, and give everyone an opportunity to, to grow and mature. And I want to thank you all for your attention uh, to the Word on Sundays, Wednesday nights, whenever we have studies, Sunday school. I appreciate that. Um, we grow in our walk with the Lord through our continued learning and knowledge of His Word. Yes, not not through our ideas, but through His Word. And this morning I want to uh, start a couple series of messages on the idea of the sword, the, the Word of the Lord. Now Paul gives a list to the church at Ephesus of different uh, pieces of armor that we are to take on as believers, uh, different pieces of, of our, our faith that the Lord gives to us. And I'm not going to go through the whole list. I'm actually going to read this because it's from the same verse, but there's one particular uh, piece of that armor that God mentions that I want to key in on. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to speak to us by your Spirit. Move through the teaching and the preaching of your Word May we all be anointed to hear what is being spoken and anoint me to speak it. Father, I pray that our, your will would be done, not our ideas, thoughts, intentions, wants, or opinions, but your word. Speak to us now. It's in Jesus' name I pray. If you agree with that, would you say amen? When Paul says to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the word, it is the only weapon that he mentions in the list of that armament that God gives to the believer. You have one weapon. You have defenses, defenses to protect yourself from the various attacks of the enemy, but you have one weapon with which to fight. And what is that weapon? The Word of God. You were not created, I'm sorry, you were not born again and recreated for the purpose of cowering in a corner and covering yourself with your armor, hoping that nothing gets through the defenses that you've put up. But rather, we are called to do what? To fight the good fight of faith. You can't fight if you don't have a sword. And you can't use a sword that you're not familiar with. And you can't have a sword, but always leave it sheathed. You have to, one, be able to fight. But you also have to be willing to engage in the fight that God has called you to. What is that fight that God has called us to? What is it that we are to use this word of God to push back against, to attack, to battle with. Obviously, we know that we all have an enemy as believers, Lucifer. And how does Lucifer affect us? 
Does Lucifer come to us and say, boogity, 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 I'm going to get you. Does Lucifer come to you and poke you with his pitchfork? Does Lucifer come to you and graffiti your house? Does Lucifer come and, and, and cause your kitchen to catch fire? Does Lucifer show up at your job and say bad things about you and get you in trouble? No. How does Lucifer affect us or fight against us? The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're spiritual. So you're not fighting a natural battle. People are not your enemy. Situations are not your enemy. Circumstances that you find yourself in are not your enemy. What is your enemy? It is a spiritual enemy. Lucifer is the prince of the power of the air. He is a spirit. He is an angel. He is capable of influencing you to cause you to produce difficult circumstances and situations in your life through which he sows doubt and fear, worry, wanting you to compromise, to cause you guilt and shame in order that he might be able to attack you. He works through you. Uh-uh, man. He's working through my wife. She's evil. Now, that boss of mine, man, you don't even know. He's awful. He says bad words and he's mean and everything. What if I told you that what everyone else does to you is, is not the attack, but rather your reaction to what is done to you is the attack. Because that which happens to us on the outside cannot affect what happens on the inside unless we let our guard down. And if we are not fighting, if we do not have our swords drawn, ready to go to war, war with what? The war that is in our mind. The war that goes on in our thoughts and in our intentions. The war that goes on inside of my head. Have you ever seen someone that's gone through similar circumstances that someone else has, but they handle it completely different? One person can have something happen and, oh, woe is me, it's the end of the world. I'm not making fun because I understand that circumstances on top of circumstances leads to, you know, difficult situations. I get that. But what I'm talking about is two people can be impacted by the same thing and one handles it differently than another. Now, let's look at this in terms of spirituality. Has there ever been a problem in your life that the Word has not had an answer for? Never. Have you ever not gone to the Word for your answer, but you went to the well that is within here? And I'm not talking about that spiritual well that never runs dry. I'm talking about that ghetto redneck, let me show you how I do things well. You know what I'm talking about? Where I'm going to, oh, I know what I'm going to do. Jesus and the preacher are not going to like it, but I'm about to do it. The only reason I don't like it is God might have to fix it, but deal with the repercussions. But when it happens and you find yourself fighting using the old weapons that you used to use, you find that those weapons don't work anymore. 
I'll give you a prime example. Jesus is betrayed by Judas with a kiss. Peter, there in the garden, when Jesus is about to be arrested, falsely arrested for false accusations, Jesus is about to be, they're about to lay hands on him. What is Jesus' response? Take me in, boys. Take me in. Why did Jesus, and I know this sounds like a silly question to ask, why did Jesus do something, but let's work this out here. Why did Jesus willingly lay down his life? Because he knew that was what? The will of the Father, the Word of God. Jesus knew what was required of him as the Messiah, as the Christ. Peter says, hold up, wait a minute. You're not taking him. Somebody's going to die today, and it ain't going to be us. He pulls out his sword and ends up hitting an innocent party. The, the, the servant of the high priest, I don't know his character, but generally when you're a servant, you do so because you need the money, not because you're politically aligned or you agree necessarily with what's going on there. The views of the following program do not necessarily reflect the views of the host. Or the host on, never mind, you know what I meant. So when Peter hacks off the ear of the servant of the high priest, Jesus' response to Peter is, what do you think you're doing? That's not how we do it, not now. This is not the time for that. That's what he says to Peter. And Peter is like, hold up, man. You told us a little while back to take a sword when we go out on the road to protect ourselves. They're trying to falsely arrest you, and you're telling me to put my sword up that I'm in the wrong. What was different about the situation or the circumstance that Jesus was encountering that day? This was the will of God. So you don't use the sword to fight against the will of God. I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, but sometimes we have to go through difficulties in life. And sometimes there are things that happen that serve to forge our character. And some of the difficulties that we have gone through at the hands of other people have been a part of the lesson that the Lord is teaching us. They have served a purpose. So let it go. Let it go. Forgive them. Let it go. God allowed you to endure that situation and you overcame it. Now let it go. You don't have to get even. You don't have to fight them. They're not your fight anyway. And that's the point of what Jesus was saying. It's not the high priest nor his servant that is the problem. What was the problem that required Jesus to have to be betrayed by Judas, to have to suffer at the hands of sinners, to be wounded and bruised? It was for our transgressions. He suffered according to the will and the express written word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We read this last week. Everything that Jesus did was according to the will of the Lord, or to the will of, of God, His Father. He never said or did anything that God did not have Him say or do or did not agree with 100%. Jesus was fully and completely in line with the will of God. So look at Jesus' life. Think about the situations that He found Himself in. Think about what was done to Jesus before his arrest and crucifixion. 
Think about what he suffered prior to. The horrible, awful execution he endured. Think about what he went through before that. What was said about him. How people treated him. The way he was looked down upon by society. Here he was, the word of God in flesh. And look at how he acted. How he conducted himself. Is it not safe to say that he fought the good fight? That every move he made, he made according to the will of God? How many times did Jesus sin? None. Never. He never did. How was he able to avoid that? He knew the word because he was the word. And it was impossible for him to contradict himself. Therefore, any time that the flesh that he was in would be tempted, what would he do? He would overcome it. And we have specific examples of how he overcame three particular temptations when he was in the desert fasting and he was weak, he was hungry, and the devil appeared to him three different times. Remember that? If you are the Son of God, command that these stones be turned to bread. Go up to the top of the pinnacle of the temple and look down at all the kingdoms of the world. If you will but bow down to me, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. And what did Jesus do each time he was tempted? What did he say to Lucifer? The word says. And he answered him with the word. Every time that you take up the word, the scripture, the Bible, and you apply that to your situation or your circumstance, you are doing more than applying words. You are applying God to your situation. You are applying the wisdom, the knowledge, the love, the mercy, and the grace of God to your situation. Because I can only speak for myself, and if I were to speak about every time that I have acted contrary to the word and the situation that it produced, I'd be here a long time. So let me just wrap it up to say that I have found it to be true in life that when I do the opposite of what God says, I experience the opposite of what I want. And you know what else I found? Is even then, there's a word for that. There's scripture to help me even then. Listen to what it says here. John 1 and 14, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. What was it? What was this glory that the people beheld? Isaiah tells us that there was nothing about the visage of Jesus, his appearance, that made him like, like he wasn't this, oh man, he's a beautiful looking dude, or he's got perfect features. I'm not saying that he was ugly to look at. I'm just saying that there was nothing about him that appealed to the flesh. Uh, think of it like this, when, when Samuel goes to anoint the next king who's going to replace Saul and he goes to the house of Jesse, he says, Jesse, the Lord told me to come here and find the next king. Jesse brings out his firstborn son, the tough, rugged, good-looking one, you know, the one that had influence and in, in stature in society. And, Jesse, and what does Samuel say? He says, oh, this, this, this is the one right here. This is the dude. I have found him. And the Lord says, try again. So he goes to the next one, and the next, 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 until finally he says, Jesse, you got any more boys around here? And Jesse said, well, let me think. 
Oh, yeah, there's one more. But he's a little kid. He's out in the field taking care of the sheep. He's on the back. Say, it'll take a little while for him to get here. I mean, I don't know how long Jesse review, or Samuel reviewed each one of Jesse's sons. But it probably took a little time because there were seven of them he went through. And Samuel says to Jesse, go get him. He says, but he's out in the field. Go get him. We will not sit down and eat until he gets here. I didn't come here to eat and have a good time. I came here to anoint a king, so go get him. They bring David in. They're probably washing his face as they're bringing him along and trying to put a new robe on him. And David gets in there. He's like, hey, what's going on, guys? And what does Samuel say? This is the one. And he pours the oil over his head. And David becomes king. But when you read the description of David, well, it says David was a, yeah, he's a fairly good-looking dude. There never was anything about David that really jumps out. Like Jesus. David was passed over because he didn't have the physical characteristics, the charisma of a worldly leader. So this isn't glory in the sense of a king or a mighty person, a celebrity, a superstar. What is the glory that they saw? Have you ever had an experience in your life where you trusted the Lord? You applied His Word and you stood on it. What I mean by that is you didn't give in, you didn't give up, you didn't back down, you didn't run away. You held on to that word, the sword, and you said, God, I know that you're going to work this out in my life. And here comes hell and high water. But you hold on, and you trust, and you believe. And because you acted on the word of God, God worked things out in your life. How did that feel? What was that moment like when you knew you had handled it correctly according to the word of God? Did that not make you feel something inside that felt like, I don't know what, like just adrenaline, excitement, just the, not the peace of knowing that God worked this out? It felt like glory. Think about what it looked like to witness the life of Jesus. John, one of the disciples, writes and says, We have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of what? Grace and truth. When you are living according to the word of God, how should your life appear? It will appear full of grace and truth. Now I know. I know that when we stand on the teaching of the Word of God, that there will be controversy. I know that there will be people who will question, who will push back against us believing and taking a stand on the Word of God. Because the Word of God will not always line up with culture, will it? The Word of God will not always agree with the news. The Word of God will not always line up with celebrities, the politicians, etc. David said, I'd rather, I'd rather spend one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. 
I would rather be in agreement with the word of God than in agreement with the world. But that is not an excuse for you to be ugly. That is not an excuse for you to be hateful. That is not an excuse for you to always be wanting to argue with someone and always looking for fault. That is not an excuse for us to be contrary toward people. There is no excuse for that. We are told not to do that over and over and over again. And the disciples tell us that they beheld the glory of God. And what did they see that they knew it was the glory? Grace and truth. It is possible for us to be in agreement with the word of the Lord, the truth, and still be people of grace. And how is that? How is that possible? Because the word of the Lord is a sword that fights back against the lie of the enemy. And we began this whole, stu- or this whole discussion this morning by talking about how the enemy works in our life. The enemy does not the enemy does not come and ask us to go inside the cage octagon and fight with them. The enemy doesn't walk into the your house and say put them up, buddy. The enemy works through your mind. How does your mind work? Don't answer that question. How does your mind work? When you're laying in bed at night, you're concerned about something, you have a lot of thoughts run through your mind, right? And what are those thoughts? Aren't they words? Words that go through your mind? And when those words in your mind don't line up with the word of God, what does that cause you? It causes you trouble. It causes you worry, anxiety. Anybody in this room overthink things? I'm what they call a classic overanalyzer. That's what I do, I overanalyze. And I'm admitted. Do you know what that means to be an overanalyzer? It means that I keep looking for more words. More words. More words that I can look at and create more ideas and more thoughts based off of those words that run through my mind. There's one word or one set of words that are capable of bringing peace Calm, steadiness, clarity. And those are the words of God that counteract the words that run through my mind. The word of God that affects the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. The word of God that is here in my hands that enter into my eyes or my ears and into my mind and they take root and they begin to fight against the thoughts in my mind and it brings those thoughts in my mind into captivity 
It subjugates them. It brings them to heal. It puts them in their place. It, 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 it isolates them. And eventually, what does it do? It eats them up and removes them. And where I used to worry, I now have confidence. Not confidence in myself and my ability to fight. But confidence in his word. And when I read his word, I might not even realize what I am doing, but there is a war going on in my mind, and his word is taking that fight. His word is entering into my thought processes and into the way that I talk and the way that I react and the way that I, I, that I analyze things. And his word does what I can't. His word His word fixes me. Sometimes it's intentional. I have a problem and I go to the word. Sometimes I'm just listening to a sermon. Something clicks. And I get it. And I get it. Even when I am asleep, the Lord is still fighting for me. Even when I am weak, the Lord is still fighting for me. When you read throughout the Psalms, you hear statement after statement of the strong right arm of the Lord. The Lord mighty in battle, He will fight for us. The Lord is a great conqueror. The Lord will part the seas that we might walk through on dry ground. The Lord will raise us up on the wings of the eagle. The Lord will give us strength. He will feed us when we're hungry. The Lord will provide us with the protection we need from our enemies. The Lord who is undefeated is fighting for us even when we don't know there's a fight going on. Day in and day out, from sun up to sundown, the enemy is doing all he can to get into our minds and cause us to think things that are contrary to the word of God. You don't have to have your face stuffed in your Bible 24-7. But do you think we would benefit from reading the Word a lot more and the news a lot less? I want to make a confession here, Kurt. I was completely unaware of some of the events that had gone on in, in, in church culture over the last couple of weeks. And I was blindsided by a question someone had about it. And I was embarrassed to say to them, I don't have any idea what you're talking about. And then I thought, wait just a minute. I'm proud that I don't have any idea what you're talking about. I'm glad that I was unaware of that. If, if we would stop letting the world tell us what we're supposed to be fighting about, and we would allow the word to lead us, in the fight that we should be fighting, I think we would find that we'd be fighting a whole lot less against our neighbor and we'd be engaging a whole lot more with ourselves. 
Goliath was not David's enemy. David was David's enemy. And David stood up to his fear, to his doubt, to the concerns that may have been in his mind. And he fought Goliath anyway. The people around him told him to shut up, sit down, be quiet, know your place, go back to the sheep, and leave the fighting to us big boys. And David said, I ain't seeing no fighting going on, boys. What was it that David stood on? Why did David engage with Goliath? Because God had told them to wipe out the giants. And in David's day, there were still five giants left that had not been taken out. Do you know how many giants were left when David died? None. Zero. The word of God had come to Moses and Joshua, wipe out the giants in the land. And for several centuries, those giants existed. Moses and Joshua killed a lot of them, but there were still some left. What did David do? He got them. He got them. You know why he got them? Because the Word said to. Because the Word told him to do it. And I'm telling you right now that the Word is not telling you to placate and to acquiesce and to compromise His Word. The Word is telling you to stand strong and stand true in the good fight of faith and to not back down and to not waver. But the enemy is not the world and the enemy is not your neighbor. The enemy is not what you might identify as the enemy. The enemy will always be, be and has always been you. And when Jesus came and lived out the Word of God completely and perfectly, the disciples described it as seeing the glory of God. Why was it the glory of God? Because no human being had ever been able to keep their, their flesh in check and live a perfect life, but Jesus did it. And how many people did Jesus kill? How many died at his hands? How many hits did he order his disciples to take? Or to take out? Did he, how many hits did he take out in order his disciples to, to complete? None. Not a one. And the whole world was against him. 2,000 years have passed. And I've dedicated my life to teaching and preaching the word that he alone was able to live out perfectly. And if I have learned anything in my life, it is that you are your own biggest enemy. I am my enemy. And why am I my enemy? Because I don't want to do what God says to do all the time. And when I don't do what God says, there's not a whole lot of glory. But when I forgive my enemies, when I love the unlovable, when I show kindness to those who are in need, when I have allowed God to use me as his hands and feet, when I have been compliant and in agreement with what he says to do, I have experienced something that can only be defined as glory. The peace, the rapture that sweeps over my soul. And I like that feeling. 
I like the feeling of being in, agree- being in agreement with the word. And I do not like the feeling of being in disagreement with the word. Read your Bible. Study your Bible. These are not Aesop's fables. These are the words of life. It's not beautiful literature. It is the literal voice of God. Read it. Listen to what it says to you. And allow the Holy Spirit within you to do what only He can do. And if you are an unbeliever, and you are reading the Word, and all of a sudden it starts to come alive to you, that is the work of God speaking to you. The work of God, He is speaking to you by His Spirit, and He is drawing you to Himself. Submit, listen, Lord, take me, do with me as you please. Save me, change me, remake me. Let me be born again in order that I might be able to take in this word and continue to live a new life. Life begins, literally, with the word of God. Are you living or existing? The word. Its existence or its absence is the answer to that question. Do you believe the Bible is the word of God, that they are the words of life? And where else, as the disciples said, where else can we go, Lord? For you have words of life. You think the world needs some life? It starts right here.